When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Does picking an outfit have you running a little too fashionably late? We get it. Great taste takes time. That's why Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery, has your back with the largest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, delivered in under 60 minutes. Convenience never goes out of style. So if you need to spend some extra time in the mirror instead of at the store, download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. This is the Decibel Dealer Podcast with Chris Sinzak and Aaron Camaro. We're back once again, ready to rock your socks off. This is the Decibel Geek Podcast. We love to talk about rock and roll, and we love it when you listen to us do it. My name is Aaron Camaro, and I'm always joined by my rock-loving friend, Chris Sinzak. How you doing, brother? I'm uh, doing good. Uh, this is uh, the first of two parts of something we are uh, very excited to share with you all. Yes. You know, we went over and visited Michael Wagner, and everybody that listens to this show knows who that is. We have sung this guy's praises for years. When we first started doing this, it was obvious that we had to find Michael Wagner because we knew he was here in Nashville. And you know we always had such a good rapport with the guy once we met him and got him on the show and we did albums unleash with him on two of the most important albums around and when we found out he was retiring we said we gotta get him back one last time if he's not doing interviews anymore we gotta have him on the decibel geek one more time yeah and he um you know, we we had done that producer switch episode where we meant you know he came up of course uh, a couple of times and um hadn't really approached him but like he came to us and was like uh, i want to give my final interview to you guys and yeah. was a huge honor and uh, we actually went out to lunch with him and you know he told us he was going to do eddie trunk show and then he was going to do our show and uh, eddie trunk show came out as of the time you're hearing this a couple of weeks ago and then uh, we went over there and spent good chunk of the afternoon with him and he had great stories, and I think we touched on a good number of things that no one's asked him before. So I'm excited to, to share it with everybody. So before we get to all that, do you want to take care of our business, or should I go ahead and give the uh, Decibel Geek podcasting pro tip of the week? Go, let's go ahead and give the pro tip now, because a lot of people fast forward through the uh, business. Okay, well, let's give the pro tip of the week. First time, hopefully only time on the Decibel Geek Podcast, and here's your pro tip from Aaron Camaro. If you are using an external recording device, not the kind you hook actual microphones up to, just the kind like you set in the middle of the table and let it rock, those things are great. You can take them anywhere. They're small. They're compact. You can do all kinds of stuff with them. Very versatile, very fun. But what we learned is that if you're using one of them, you can't put your phone by it. Yeah. So while we're talking to Michael Wagner, we're all sitting on a little round table and we got our phones out. I got, you'll hear, I've got his discography open on my phone 
and we got your listener questions. And so we're, we're on site with him at the studio where there is nothing that he can record us with. Cause otherwise, you know, like in the past, it's pristine when Michael Wagner does it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but for us foolish people, after all these years of doing this podcast, we're all leaned up on that table, huddled around the Zoom recorder, got our phones out, and you're going to find some electronic feedback on this. Now, it's annoying as hell. I'll give you that. It's bad. But you can still hear everybody. It's kind of in the background a little bit. It comes and goes, and after a little while, it goes away. So we do have some technical issues on this show this week, but nothing too severe. And if you can muscle through it, you're going to enjoy one hell of a conversation with Michael Wagner, I promise. Yeah, I think it's after like the first five or so minutes, it, it tends to get better. So uh, hang in there and, and enjoy. I'm so embarrassed. <laughs> Live and learn. Yeah, go to Wireworld Studio and, you know, can't rely on the master to record us and leave it in our hands and what happens. But like I said, it's going to be amazing and you're going to love it. So with the Decibel Geek podcasting pro tip out of the way, let's handle our business. And you know us, our favorite thing in the whole entire world is podcast reviews. We like to get them from Apple Podcast. We like to get them on the Podchaser website. And we definitely love those Facebook recommendations. And we've got one right here. comes to us from Apple Podcasts. And it's a good one because it's got all five stars. It's entitled 80s Judas Priest Episode. And it goes like this. Love the podcast. You guys have done it again. Just like the 70s Priest episode, the 80s Best and Worst has reminded me of how awesome this band is. Keep up the good work, guys. You are helping in keeping metal and hard rock alive. Best music podcast out there for sure. P.S. I agree with you guys. There really is no worst when it comes to Priest. And that comes to us from Lothar277 on Apple Podcasts. From Canada. That's awesome. Lothar, I like the name. That's great. Yeah, very cool. Love that review. If you guys think you can do as good as that one, I dare you to accept this challenge. All you got to do is go to Apple Podcasts, leave us a review, go to Facebook, leave us a recommendation, or check out Podchaser. While you're there, you're going to find all kinds of cool recommendations to other cool podcasts. You'll find really good details about the podcasts on Podchaser. So any one of those places... We love it. Yep. Thanks for sending those in and uh, keep them coming. And uh, we look forward to getting more. So uh, last bit of business, the Geeks of the Week this week. Our favorite people in the whole world. These are the ones they took last week's episode, which was a fun one. We had a lot of love for that best and worst of Judas Priest episode. We had our good friend Mark Striegel on there with us. And he was invaluable to have with us because he was so into Priest when all this stuff was new. It was great to have that perspective. And it was a good episode. I can always tell when we have fun recording it, it's going to be good. Yeah, it was great to have Mark on. And we had a had a blast talking about that discography. And uh, it's going to be interesting to do the best and worst of 90s Priest, huh? <laughs> Not looking forward to that one as much and probably going to have a little tougher time finding our third co-host to do it with us. Yeah, for sure. 
but we could always try it. You never know. As a matter of fact, we were just talking on the last uh, Decibel Geek Friday Night Live, in case you haven't heard, we brought it back last week, and we're doing it again. Hopefully, you're hearing this Friday morning, so that means we're doing it tonight. And uh, yeah, join us on Facebook for that. But we were talking to our friends on there about, you know, what other bands would you like to see us do best and worst on? And we had all kinds of really great uh, recommendations on bands to do, some really good ones. So look forward to busting out more of that. Maybe 90s Priest, we'll push that one back a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) They will do it in 2056. (laughs) Yeah. But when it comes to 80s priests, man, everybody loves it. And that's why so many people got out there. They shared it. They retweeted it. I'm talking about the main post on our Facebook page or on our Twitter account. I even think we got some Instagram going on out there. I don't know if we keep track of those as good. But we do keep track of the Facebook. We do keep track of the Twitter. And the people that share and retweet the episode, well, man, they're the one and onlys. Our Geeks of the Week. Geeks of the Week this week are Adam Cox, Rockin' Run Runyon, Darren Lanou, John Verno, Mark Alden-Taylor, Mark and Jerry BS Sessions, Aaron Baker, John Phillips, Brian Harris, Jay Shabluski, Pantheon Podcast, Keith Rockford, Mark Striegel, Sit and Spin with Joe, David Glenn, Mike Parnell, Kristen Schimbeck, Alan Deshaun, Nick Minow, Hakon Bergstad, JJP, Body of the Soul, Daniel Lee, Kevin's on Fire, Ernesto Aguiar, JJ McElhenney, MJ Condaleone. Jeff Taylor, Focus on Metal, Vet Halen, Lil Willie, A to Z, David Cathy, Scott Crouch, and as always, the, the Mooger, Mooger Fooger. That's right. Those are our people, our geeks of the week. We thank them for sharing the episode and helping us get the word out about what we got going on here at the Decibel Geek Podcast. And what that is, is a whole lot of talk about a whole lot of rock. And we're going to get to it. You guys are going to love this. This man's legendary. This is the final interview he's ever going to do. And he chose to do it with us. Why? Because Chris and I are awesome, and we've got the most kick-ass listeners in the entire world. So you guys kick back and enjoy this one. It's part one of the final interview with Michael Wagner. Well, first off, good to see you. Good to see you guys. Yeah. And uh, what have you been filling your time with other than this amazing truck we just saw? That's outside? it. That's it. That's it. I wake up in the morning and I go, what do I have to do today? Nothing. Yeah. Because I don't have to do anything. <laughs> and I very much enjoy it. Yeah. And so, and then finally, after a while, you come up with, with stuff that you have to do. So I bought this truck. Mm-hmm. And that's going to keep me busy for a while. Yeah, and obviously, we're an audio podcast, so you can't see it. But... Uh, this truck that Michael bought is incredibly impressive. Yeah, yeah, 1952 Ford F1 in Ferrari red. It's <laughs> it, it's, it's pretty amazing. And another thing you also can't see is that we are actually recording in Wireworld Studios for maybe the last time something gets recorded in here. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I guess it would be the last uh, thing that gets recorded in here. Well... You know, you brought the recorder. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even have a recorder here anymore. Right. No speakers, no anything. A couple of guitars I left. Yeah, I'm and, trying to. And that's it. I'm really contemplating buying one of these guitars as long yeah. as, <laughs> as long as I don't get a divorce from doing it. <laughs> but, and all all the others, you can still see where the where the cases were. Yeah. But everything else is in New Zealand. 
Yeah, wow. so that, a lot of people had asked us, even in private conversations, like, well, what the hell happened to all of his stuff? And, and, and it, I mean, a lot of people think, well, the studio bought it. But no, it was one of the bands you produced bought the studio. Right. It's, uh, the band Black Smoke Trigger from New Zealand, and I did with them, I think it was two years ago yeah, or three yeah. years ago. We did a record together, and they were keen on the studio from the fir- first day on. And... Uh, I think they're pretty well off, so... They must be. <laughs> so they go, we're going to buy your studio one day. I go, sure. Yeah. And then, you know, uh, I had that stroke in March, last March, and I decided, that's it, I'm out, I will not uh, move on with this. And then they said, so how about the studio? <laughs> and we, you know, agreed on the price, and then we started packing it up and sent it to New Zealand. Wow. Took two and a half months on the boat to wow. get there, but it's there. They're going to open up the studio they, they slash have, Michael Wagner Museum they have, in New Zealand. Uh, their own studio, but they're building a new building with a new studio facility in it, yeah. and they're going to reproduce exactly the setup like it was here. Wow! They kind of have to because. The cables have a certain name, <laughs> so, so they have to set it up the same way and put the walls in the floor. Yeah, you know. Wow. Well, I mean, you know, I, and you're clearly enjoying retirement. Oh, um, I love it. But when when it. you saw all the stuff, you know, getting shipped off, was there a little bit of sadness? Uh no, no? because I we were so busy packing everything up. You can imagine all this stuff that I've collected over 50 years, basically. Yeah. You know, had to get packed up in cardboard boxes and then into a container. And and that was about a couple of weeks after that, I'm at the house and I go, oh, I'm going to go to the studio and listen to... No, I'm not. <laughs> I don't have any speakers there anymore. Uh, you you know? should have kept at least a couple of speakers. Yeah, well, I have up front. But, <laughs> yeah, okay. but uh, sometimes when I see, like, microphones and, and advertisements, and I go, oh, I have one of those. No, I don't. Uh. <laughs> you know, and, and uh, as you know, I pretty much the, the motto was one of each, two of most, and three of some. Right. Yeah. You know, and... and there was a lot, I think, 270 microphones wow. and, and stuff, and it all went. So I finished mentally with that part of my life, yeah. you know. I don't know if you've ever been asked this. So, you know, you're from Hamburg originally. Um, grew up there, correct? Uh, no. You did not? I'm from a city called Wuppertal, which is right next to Solingen, where all the knives and, and, and stuff comes from the you know, but I when I got drafted to the army when I was nineteen, that they drafted me to Hamburg, which was three hundred fifty oh, miles okay. away from where I grew up, and that made practice with accept very hard. That's one of my questions. Mm-hmm. Was yeah. that's that's on Wikipedia, and I was like, is that really true? Yes. And um, well, what what were you, what did you think about military service? Well, you have to go. In Germany, you get drafted, so you have to go. Right. You know, and, and me being the practical guy, you have to go for, I, I think, 12 months. I, I don't know. No, you have to go for 18 months, and then I became a career soldier for 24. But as a normal guy in the army, you make 150 bucks a month. I made 1500 a month. 
and I got paid off at the end. So, okay, it goes six months longer and, and, you know, make a little bit of money. But then I got stuck in Hamburg. I got actually married uh, during that time. And, and I, so, you know, I moved to Hamburg officially after that. But to bring up Hamburg, I was thinking, you know, obviously you're a well well aware, I'm sure, that the Beatles got their early start. Oh, really? Pl- pl- the playing in Hamburg, yeah. <laughs> um, but yes, pe- I am. <laughs> uh, I deserve that. Who's this Beatles you're talking about? Yeah, but I mean, uh, playing, playing places like Kaiser Heller and the Indra Club. Did you ever... Kaiser Heller, yeah. Did you ever get to go to any of these Oh, venues? absolutely, yeah. yeah. Even while I was still uh, at the Army. We went there, and the other time was with Udo together. Udo came up there, and he got drafted up there as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, we went to the Kaiser Killer in, in Hamburg and, and, you know, realized, damn, this is where it all started. That's that's why I got kicked out of school, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because from what I read, the conditions weren't great in, in Hamburg at the time oh, they were played there. Like it, no, it was kind no. of a seedy Especially town. not for them in 63 yeah. or 62, you know. Yeah. So, um, well, th- I don't know if I've ever asked you this before. Did they, uh, were, the, were the Beatles a big influence on you? Were you oh, they, absolutely. Yeah, you were a fan. Yes. Uh, I mean, uh, I was in high school and I and, uh, was never really happy there. And then when the Beatles came out, I go, that's what I want to do. And and sure enough, probably a year later, I got kicked out of high school, and and but you know I got, yeah, I want to be like the Beatles, and, yeah. and but you have to understand, uh, I don't know how it was over here, but in in Europe, people went crazy for them. Yeah. They went crazy, and you couldn't understand a very normal person you talk to normal and the Beatles came out and they completely freak out yeah. you know I mean I was never that bad but I did like him yeah. there was something to that band that, yeah. you know it seemed like they really changed the whole culture oh, at, the, at the time completely everywhere yeah. Yeah. yeah just overnight it was yeah so then did you grow up with Udo were you guys little yes. kids together yes um, we went to school to to what do you call it? Elementary school? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. From, I got schooled. In Germany, now you go to school when you're six years old. Okay. Uh, I got in with seven years because I was in the hospital for 11 months. Had some kind of operation, which I can't remember what it was, <laughs> uh, when I was six. So I got to school a year later, and I was in class for about a week. And then Udo came in because they had just moved from Berlin to uh, to where the school was. Okay. And then, and on the first day, I uh, I sit in class. I didn't know him from anybody, and he sat like two rows behind me. And in the middle of the class, all of a sudden, there's music starting. It was. Don't Ha Ha by Casey Jones. I don't know if you even know that know song. know the artist. I don't know the song. Yeah. yeah. And, and 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 so you imagine that. We're sitting in class. The, the guy, there's some guy up front talking, and then blaring is this music from two rows behind me. And I turn around, and it was Udo, and he had one of those little 
record single record players where you push the the record in uh -huh. and it automatically starts playing on battery. Oh, wow. <laughs> and that happened in class. That happened by itself. You know, so oh, wow. that's how we met. <laughs> and we were friends from that minute on and, and really close. I mean, we would hang every day, you know, uh, grow up, go to dancing school together and, and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, we were friends all the way. And then later on when I went to high school, he started working at his dad's company And uh, uh, so we got separated just a little bit, but we saw each other once in a while. And then later on, when we were like 12, 13, we got together again. And then we were listening to music together, and, you know, we, we did the band together, um, which was called Band X, for lack of a better name, which then turned into... Uh, we found the name Accept and then made it Accept. And basically, a couple of weeks later, I got drafted. Ah. So. What was the inspiration for the name Accept? We were looking for a name, obviously. Uh -huh. And so we went through all of Udo's vinyl records. And there was a Chicken Shack record that was called Accept. Hmm. That's where we saw that. Wow. <laughs> I always kind of wondered that. Yeah, yeah, I never, I never knew what it was either. There's other people that wanted that too. Yeah. <laughs> Now everybody knows. Let's uh, go a little forward. Like so, that the '80s in particular, there was like you know quite a group of producers. Yourself, obviously, uh, Bo Hill, Ron Nevison, Bruce Fairbairn, Bob Rock, that were like the go-to guys mm -hmm. in that decade. Um, what were your relationships like with them back then? Was there like a healthy rivalry between any of the producers, or did you guys were you guys friends and talked, or how, how did that work back then? Well, I was pretty green when I came over from Germany. I I came over the first time in '79, invited by Don Darkin, and showed up at his door one morning and going, "Hey," and he goes, "What are you doing here?" <laughs> and then uh, uh, deciding in '79. This is where I want to be. Yeah. I came back in 80, uh, got a job at Larrabee Studio uh, on Hollywood Boulevard. And, uh, uh, you know, it was very different from Germany. Yeah. And, and uh, I didn't have a green card. And, 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 and the situation uh, uh, was pretty bad at the time financially. So... At the end of late 80s, late 1980, I, I went back to Germany. Yeah. And Udo, um, with Accept, with, they were going on tour with uh, apparently Van Halen at the time, wow. which never came together, but we went on tour with Judas Priest instead. Mm -hmm. And I was their sound engineer. Oh, cool. So we were back together in that way, mm -hmm. but, uh, um, you know, so I had a job and so on and so on. And uh, when, but I always wanted to go to America. That I, ever since I was here, I go, this is the place where I belong and where I can be somebody, you know. Uh, and uh, uh, Udo and I, we created Double Trouble Productions. Right. That was him and me. And I saw that, obviously, on a Steve Ray Vaughan 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I go, ah, we're in Germany. Nobody will ever know. <laughs> sure, sure. So anyway, but we called it Double Trouble Productions, and, and, and then Udo went back to accept at the time, and I went to America in 1984. Mm-hmm. So then I took over the company, and uh, but we did Raven, mm-hmm. the awful one, together. Yeah. And... Faithful Breath was another uh, band which you probably heard of every day, right? Oh yeah, oh. yeah. <laughs> I have their whole collection. It was a, it, <laughs> there was ones with the horn, the Viking, the Vikings, and and but it was real heavy metal. What yeah. was it so, called? Faithful Breath. Faithful Breath. Yeah, never and, heard of and, that. And and uh, and Udo and I would produce that one together. There's there's pictures of that too. And uh, um, then I moved to America and started doing, you know, Don Dawkins albums. And in 1984, it started with uh, White Lion and then Metallica at some point, Poison, uh, all, all mm-hmm. these guys, and, you know, Keel. And, and I mean, there was one record after the next. Yeah. I, I couldn't even, you know, the telephone wouldn't stop. And the first big record was uh, Dawkins' Under Lock and Key. Most that was the amazing. one that went multiple platinum, yeah. and ever then, ever since then, the telephone didn't stop ringing. Yeah. So there was not, like, any kind of relationship. I didn't really know any of the other producers. Mm. You know, yeah, I met Bo Hill when he was doing Rat, and, and uh, um, I think I met Ron Nevison, and and Keith Olsen mm-hmm. and and all those guys, but that was just hello. And yeah. I don't think it was a competition right. because at that time there was enough to do for everybody. Yeah, because yeah. rock, rock was exploding. So. That was the yeah, time. There was plenty yeah. of work yeah. to go around for everybody, I guess. Yeah, but uh, but yeah, I just didn't know because like that, you know, us as fans were like, oh, you know, I like this one that Michael did, and I like this one that Bo Hill did. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I just thought we like to pip pit bands against each other but even nerds like Aaron and I we pit producers against each other it's one of those things that comes up in discussion regularly <laughs> for sure yeah so when I was a kid I never thought about you know the producer of the album I just listened to the music heard the band never really thought any much deeper about it anything about what it took to make this album or anything like that I was just listening to it and then when you get older I guess just being the kind of guys we are you you start looking at stuff like that. Well, this album's got this sound to it, and that makes sense because so does that album, and it was the same guy producing it. And so it opened up a whole new world to me of being able to see, think a little deeper than beyond the music and what makes it that way, mm-hmm. you know, and what makes me appreciate a lot of these albums. Were there producers that, you know, when you were coming up that you looked up to and wanted to emulate their... What yes, they uh, Roy Thomas Baker was, mm-hmm. you know, obviously did the first four Queen albums. Yeah. And then everything I liked after that, from Journey to Cars and everything, um, he was always my idol. Mm-hmm. And then when Def Leppard came out in ACDC, yeah. it was Mott Lang. Mott Lang, yeah. So between the two, they were both very excessive 
in different directions. Right. You know, I asked Roy one day, we need a big room to do the drums in for the Darken album it was. Mm-hmm. And he goes, rent the forum. <laughs> and he meant it. That's he a very Roy it. Thomas Baker thing to say. Yeah, he goes, you can just rent a mobile truck, drive it in there, and then record on the stage yeah. of the forum. That's a big enough room. Go, yeah. Okay. Uh, and actually, we ended up recording at Royal Recorders with Skit Row. Uh-huh. That was his tip, too. He had recorded to Pow there, and that studio, Royal Recorders, had a uh, convention center right next door. Oh. And that convention center had 120 cars in it. That's where the drums for Skip Row, Skip Row were recorded. Wow. We actually had to tighten it down. It was too big. Wow. <laughs> That's wild. Yeah. It was, you know, and you worked at, you know, several studios all over L.A., um, what ones were the ones that stood out as like some of your favorites to work in? Well, I worked a lot at Amigo Studios, yep. which was the old Warner Brothers, where Eddie did some stuff and, and a whole bunch of people where you go, really? You know, mm-hmm. uh, that was a great studio. And it was a great studio because of the owner, mm-hmm. uh, Chet Himes, who passed away a couple of years ago. He was amazing, and I learned so much from that guy, you know, and, and stuff where you go, that's how you do that? Yeah, yeah of course. And then and then uh, uh, he would give me those tips. I would try them. They would work, you know, and, and I felt at home there. Mm-hmm. And then there was, like, new management came in, and it kind of went little bit down the drain, you know, and the guy on the first day collected all the gold and platinum albums from all over the studio and put them in his office. Ah. So mm. right there, say no more. Yeah. You know? yeah. And, and uh, but the studio was always cool and you would be recording and I would be doing White Lion and you could walk through the control room, you know, there was a door on each side and all of a sudden, uh, this guy walks in and stops and looks at us and say, what's love got to do with it? And walks out. And we look at each other and it was Ike Turner. Uh, you know, and that would wow. happen all the time. <laughs> Al Cooper, not Alice, yeah, but Al Cooper. Al Cooper would come in with a black strap and uh-huh. gave it to Vito. You know, and Vito would go, wow, that's all rusted. What, you know, and, and he goes, yeah, that belonged to Jimi Hendrix. And Vito started shaking. Wow. Yeah, I would too. We yeah. recorded one one solo with it, I think. Do you I, remember which solo? No, I uh, forgot. But it was on on uh, uh, the first White Fight to Survive? No, it was on the first White Line album. Oh, okay. So I don't know. Uh, I forgot which one. Yeah. You know? and uh, uh, But stuff like that kept happening there. And it was really inspiring. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I gotta imagine there's probably quite a few moments where something like that would happen. Yes. You, you, you get or you get starstruck by like, wow, that guy just showed up. Like, yeah, you know, especially Hollywood in the '80s because yeah. it was just everyone was there. At the yeah, time. it really was. Yeah, the Three Amigos. Remember these guys from the film The Three Amigos? Oh yeah, yeah. Chevy Chase. Yeah, they were recording their vocals. What? Yeah. <laughs> Did you yeah. get to meet them? Oh yeah, that's awesome. Oh, yeah. Wow. <laughs> and I did Alice there, and and. Uh, uh, um, who else? John, John, was it John Denver? Yeah, yeah, that guy was recording. And uh, what was the trumpet player? Kenny G, 
No, 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 he's no. sax player. Oh. Uh, um, black guy. Bradford Marsalis? Nope. Louis Armstrong? No. <laughs> Izzy Gillespie? Nope. We're not schooled on trumpet players. <laughs> no. Sorry. No. We named the three that and we know. And I ran into him. There was this, this dark hallway, you know, and I ran into him in that hallway. Uh-huh. And, and uh, uh, tons, 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 tons of people. Yeah. That drove up there, and, and, and they were recording there. There was three studios. Yeah. yeah so that was a lot of inspiration. That's yeah. cool. So that was my favorite place. Yeah. And the, the best part about it is I was going to do X, the band X, mm-hmm. you know, and I was looking for studios, and I got to Amigo, and I talked to uh, Chet, and, and he goes, well, you know, we got these two, the main rooms, that one... And that one doesn't have a console in it. Yeah. So we have the consoles. Which console would you like in the room? And I told them, oh, yeah, I would like the, the MCI console. Uh-huh. We put that in here. So they did. Wow. And then I go, if you would have an SSL, I would even mix here. So they bought an SSL and put it in this tiny, tiny little room. And eventually Metallica got mixed on that one. Oh, wow. Yeah. So there's uh, some history I didn't know you worked with X. Yeah. What that was you, one of the first bands. Isn't what? X like a punk rock band? Yeah, it was a punk oh, yeah. rock band. They were on Electra, and Electra wanted me to make them pop. Did you do the, okay. their version of Wild Thing? Yes. That I was the very that. first thing. That's in and, the movie Major League. Yeah. Yeah. And then we did the record. Oh, hang on, I can tell you. I'm not real up on X's catalog. I, I know have, just a few songs of theirs. I but, would have to But that like that but their version of Wild Thing, when you hear that compared to their earlier stuff, it's like wow, this is like almost a different right. band. Right. But it, it's a gr- the, but that it makes sense that was you because it's got that really big sound yeah, to it. That was yeah. that total excess in Redondo Beach. Oh really? Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's wild. You got X uh, Ain't Love Grand. That's the record. But it's in between Raven and Striper. <laughs> <laughs> wow, you're an interesting interesting yeah. year that year. <laughs> yeah. And uh um uh, that's right. Yeah. That was in the early eighties, right? Let's see. That would have been five, six? 85 yeah. was the X album. Yeah. That's when that came out. Yeah, yeah. So it was 84. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the the band was an underground punk band. Yeah. And, and, but the label wanted me to make them successful and wanted me to make them uh, a pop. Yeah. So I did. The band hated me. I was going to say, how did uh, the band feel about it? How the they feel about it at the time? Like right off the bat, were they cool with it or let's try it? Or they well, say, what the hell, metal it. guy? Yeah, we just did it, you yeah. know, and, and that's what came out. And I think afterwards they were not too happy with it, but they had a hit. Yeah. And and so there was some mm. money coming in, and, and that's never wrong. Right. You know? Yeah. Well, and also the John Doe from X is... Like a, he's a great actor. He's oh, had amazing! Some, had yeah. several great roles, and especially back in those days. You know? I remember uh, <laughs> funny story with the A and R guy. I don't want to mention his name at the time for okay. Electra. Right. Uh, you know, we did a cover version of All or Nothing. It was, I think, two minutes and fifteen seconds. Mm-hmm. So I sent a cassette of that to the A and R guy. And and he goes, yeah, it's cool, but it's too long. At two minutes and 15 seconds? Well, um, 
So I go, what do you mean? It's two minutes and 15 seconds long. He goes, no, but it says 510 here. No, that's the date. <laughs> a real genius there. And that kind of stuff would, would happen like every day. Uh, yeah. Small faces. Small faces. Small faces was mm-hmm. the band. Uh, yeah. Yeah. What, what, what were, you, were you happy with A&R people for the most part, or were there some that just drove you up the, the wall? My job was to circumvent A&R people. Yeah, keep them know? out of the room. Yeah. And, and what you would do at the time is, okay, um, we want this song to be the first single. So you invite the A&R people down to sing background vocals on that song. So now uh, that was their song, yeah. and they were involved, and it was the first single. Wow. That's pretty so, smart. <laughs> and it was always like you would record it, and by the time they left the studio, you already had erased it. You know, and when, when later on, it was, oh, I can hear myself. That's me. Oh, yeah, we can hear you, clearly. Is that something you go to them and say, hey, we want you to come do this, or they just yeah. happen to be there? You go ahead and yeah, head them yeah, off yeah, the no, Just call them up, we're doing back and vocal. Let's go ahead We think you guys would be great. <laughs> um, you do the, what we call it, the football vocals. Yeah. You know, where you had 20 people, and yep. it didn't matter. Right. You know, yeah. So, but I'm probably going to get shot about all those secrets, but <laughs> <laughs> you're retired. You're, you can enjoy. Yeah. You can say it now. But like, <clears throat> yeah, that, that's brilliant though, because it's like, let's go ahead and make them feel loved, and right. then get them out of the room. Yeah, yeah. involved. You know, that's funny. Sure. Yeah, and then they got stakes in it because then they can tell their friends. I hear, you know that song? I'm singing on that. Singing on that, uh-huh. and I bought sushi that day. Well, and, and I've heard like I've I, I've uh, like a lot of comedians <clears throat> that I've, I've done television work and stuff. They'll they'll open up a little bit about behind the scenes stuff, and a lot of and creatives that work in television and movies will say, you know, you go you start with idea A, and then you end up with you know X product, and in that process you've got all these different people where their specialty is not in the creative. They're in the offices, but they right. want to come down and give their two cents and feel right. like they're important. I assume you dealt with that quite a bit. Back Absolutely. In the day. Yeah. I've had people, again, I don't want to name names. I do that when I write the book and I, I passed away, then Tina can sell that. <laughs> <All> right. <laughs> um, I had people coming to rehearsal and go, well, the ending of that song, blah, 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 it should be this and this and this. And then we did the record, and these A&R guys would come down to listen to it. Mm-hmm. And the funny thing is, you you know, had a camera on the other side of the studio window where it was dark, and then you see them trying to hit the groove with their feet, yeah. which was always like, you know. <laughs> on the one and three. Maybe, <laughs> yeah. So, and then... They, I play that song and I go, so you like that new ending better? Oh, yeah. Feel much better. Same ending as before. Oh, and they have know? no idea. They have no idea. So it's basically just uh, they have to say something, but, it, you know, and and, uh, uh, and and then again, there's, there's other A&R guys like John Collardner that exactly know what they're talking about. Yeah. You know, and where you go, Really? Is, is that going to happen? And then you do it, and you go, he's right. You know? Yeah. He's a fascinating character. Oh, right? unbelievable. So I'm, so you did probably did several records with yes. him involved, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I did. But yeah, he's uh, he was really looked at like a guru back in the day as for, as for like, yes. just knowing how to steer bands in the right direction and stuff. Yeah. 
but but also seemed like he could be really stern and and difficult when he wanted to right and you know as a producer um you should probably listen to him yeah you know because he got into more stuff than you have <coughs> up up to that point yeah you know I, I mean he's done more records than I have oh, his, well, yeah, his up resume, to that point his but re- now I don't know anymore but you know um, he's one of the few people with a resume about as good as yours. <laughs> Right. Yeah. And and he knows what he's talking about. Yeah. Even though, and he does look like Jesus. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Have you ever seen John Collier? Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you know, we're talking about A and R people, you know, or, or people in from the industry putting their two cents in. Now, when you're a, a producer and you're working on an album, it's got to be a delicate balance, though, because musicians are known and creatives in general are known to have, you know, ego and insecurity a lot of the time. So they come in with their vision. This is the, you know, especially if it's like a band's first record, you know, this is what we've been playing for two years. This is the way we sound. This is what we're going to do. But you're brought in as a producer to steer them in the right direction. And if you hear something that could make the song better, do you almost have to play psychologist sometimes to just to know how to massage them into you know, going along with what you want to do. 75% of producing is psychology. Yeah. And the, the I don't say I have the, the uh, recipe for it, but the way I feel is, okay, here's this band. They have a certain style. If they didn't have something that was great, I wouldn't want to work with them. Right. So take what's great and bring that out. Mm. So I would become the fourth, fifth, sixth member of the band, and and we would talk about that. We'd go, okay, that song, what if you do this and this there and there and there? And we would go into pre-production. That was a very important thing back then. You know, we would go... Uh, for a month, mm-hmm. we would go into a rehearsal room, set up so everybody could hear everybody, which is sometimes not the case in their rehearsal room. Right. They always hear it's themselves. Blasting, you yeah. know, and when they hear the other guitar player, they go, <clears throat> what is he playing? You know, so and we would be in a rehearsal room and we'd go over the songs and then record them in a very simple way on a two track or a little cassette machine. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, uh, we listen to it and go, what do you think? Is that better or is that better? And I would go along with what everybody would decide, that's better. Mm. You know, and, and, and sometimes I would never insist on what I said is going to be the law. Mm-hmm. You know, right. um, but I would always try it out. And I would ask of them to try it out, too. So if there's a part that I thought should be different from what the part that they came up with, okay, let's try it, let's record it, and then we listen to it. Yeah. And then let the whole band decide what it should be. Mm-hmm. And that has worked for me fantastically. Yeah. Um, um, in some cases, you have to be a little bit more stern, you know, but I never 100% insisted that's how it's got to be. Right. And, you know, it, it, the time shows I've not always been right. Mm-hmm. So sometimes their version was the better one. Right. That's a good way of going about it, I would think. Yeah. But, I mean, but then there's other producers, that, <clears throat> Bob Ezrin, that uh, will uh, 
rule with an iron fist yeah and say nope this if you want this to sound good you're gonna do it my way yeah yeah and i guess there's something to be said for that as well um (laughs) but like the psychology behind it that's got to be like like you said most of the job is just working with people and the relationships you have to deal with and you have to you have to know the people that's why i said you have to become one of the band members to be friends with those people you know sometimes like the guitar player, I would go, can you try this and this? They would try it right away and maybe like it or maybe not like it. But sometimes a guitar player would refuse to try anything that any outside person suggested, mm-hmm. you know. And then you kind of have to, like, put the seed out. And then three days later, he goes, oh, I got this part. Which is the part that you wanted him to play? <laughs> you make them think it's their idea. Yeah. Yeah. And and then and then you finally got it to where you want it anyway. That's smart. You know? but it doesn't matter because the end result is that record. Yeah. And, and right. that, you know, that and that's what's count. In that situation, everybody's goal is the same, so it's best to get on the same page and mm-hmm. try to work it out as best you can. When you are going into a project, how quick can you tell how, if it's going to be a good experience or a bad experience? Before. Beforehand. Before even. I go into um, I used to get the demo first, and I had to like that in order to start anything. And then I went and met the, met the people. And I had to get along with at least four of the five people or three of the four. You know, was sometimes there's one guy that's a little different, but he's a great player or a great yeah. singer. Uh, but I had to get along, and, and it had to be fun. Right. And then we would go into pre-production, and and by that time, normally it would come to, to, to the record, yeah. to do the record. But um, I don't think there was ever... Well, in the very, very beginning, there was there was something where I said, "Well, to to take your grandma's money, here is your money back, and you find somebody else." Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was just going to ask if there was anyone where you got into pre-production and you're like, it was, "I can't work it with was, these guys." But I can't even remember the band anymore. Yeah. Or the name of the band, you know, and they never amounted Not to anything, anything anyway. Yeah. Was it just that they were terrible musicians, or? Just- um, hard to be around. It could be anything. Yeah. It could be anything. It could be after you hear the songs or you go, yeah, we could change those songs and they would refuse to change them or, you know, uh, and, and, but uh, it could be anything. Okay. Terrible musicians, you can point out right away yeah. most of the time and then, and then you can go, I don't think I have time, you know. What about when you get to the point where you say, okay, the demo sounds good, now I want to go meet these guys. Do you go meet them at a bar at their, where they live? No, at, at the, the rehearsal room. At the rehearsal yeah. room? Or at my house or wherever, you know. Has there any, ever been any situations where then you realize, you know, think, damn, the music was good, but I can't deal with this shit? I can't remember. I can't remember uh, because at that point, if the music is good, you make some, you go, all right, this you know, could be an asshole, but the music is really, really good. It's going to be worth or it. Or you, you start working with the asshole, and, and you know, it, he became a friend, or he comes should, around. she became a friend. And, and so uh, um, there's situations where you know it's going to be 
tough mm-hmm. to work with, you know. But then again, afterwards, it turns out, wow, yeah. big successful record. Okay. You know? Because I see it that way. Let's say you're a singer, and you stand in front of 25,000 people. Try that once. Right. You know, you're on that stage. You have to be a special character to, to, to do that. Oh, yeah. And then to handle that crowd, again, there's one more step in that direction. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I mean, you have to have an ego to pull that off. Sure. I mean, there's at least yeah, a little bit. That, that's, yeah. The confidence is most of the challenge with yep. that. Just getting up and doing it. And I couldn't do that. You know, I couldn't. If I have to go up on stage, it's like, oh, God, you know, in in a little club of, of 150 people, you know, I would go, oh, okay, we're doing this for this band tonight and everybody has to sing along. Sorry, I did that to you at Rock and Pop. <laughs> Having you up on stage, but um, but yeah. Well, so was there? Uh, well, one thing I want to add, and I know there's there's a few that come to mind from past times we've talked to you. Is what were the like some of the musicians that just would floor you with like their ability to knock everything out in one take, like every time you went to? Well, them? one take is is one thing, but yeah. being good, even if you have to play it three or four times, right. you know. Um, Vito, yeah. That's the was first one definitely I the one where where I go, holy Moses, you know, and and uh, uh, Steve Stevens. Oh yeah, great. Point. Nuno, mm-hmm. uh, and there's a whole bunch yeah. more. You know, there's a bunch of people that are amazing. Jax, yeah. just recently, my last product that I've done. It's Jax Hollow, and and she blew my mind. Yeah, you know, she sat down and played that stuff, and go, how, how do you just play that? You know, <laughs> and and uh, same with with her vocals, really really good. And and after I was really lucky in my career, and there's a whole bunch of those people. Yeah, you know, Alice Cooper being one of them. Oh, sure, you know, and 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 uh, a whole bunch, Zach. Yeah, and Rachel and and the other guys in Skid Row—they're all like, "You just played that in one take," <laughs> you know, and and uh, uh, so I got lucky in my career and 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 had a whole bunch of those. Do you think the world's ever going to hear from Vito Brada again? No, I don't think so. I wish I wish the world would hear from him again. And I would come out of retirement in a second to work with yeah. Vito. Mm. And he's pretty much uh, the only guy. We've talked, and, and I've heard his side about it, and I do understand his side about it. And uh, it's just sad, you yeah. know, that such a talent is all of a sudden gone, and, and you know. But I do understand. But he was like one of the very, very top guys. He was one of the few guitarists that it, back in the day that I thought rivaled Eddie Van Halen. Well, there's a few. There's George Lynch. Oh yeah, I mean, there's others. But you know, they, and then he, there, yeah. there's there's other people, and and uh, Vito was one of them. And when I talked to all of them, they would say, "We've played the same stuff that Eddie has played mm-hmm. forever. We just can't play it anymore because Eddie is signed." Right. Yeah. So that's when it stopped for them, mm. and they had to come up with something different than hammer-ons and stuff like that. But I mean, with Vito, like 
something there was something so natural about his playing and right like, and he still made it his he, own yeah but yeah. like uh, and I, I can only the only person i can compare it to is stevie ray vaughn to right. where yes the playing is technically sound but it's the emotion that comes through the playing it's like you can't just replicate that no. it, it comes from from in here right and the way it, when Vito played it was just like just flowed out of him yeah and it, that that's very rare to find yeah yeah and on top of that you know all of White Line at the time and, and myself we had the same ideas we had the same likes you know we like motorcycles and 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 all that kind of stuff so like i said i was one of the bands yeah you know and 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 then at that point you don't stick out you know um and and vito and i we, we talked about the same stuff love cars at the time and and uh so that all counts in there a little bit yeah you know so if, if if I would have to deal with a guitar player that shoots elephants or something like that, I couldn't do it. You're not going to work with Ted Nugent anytime soon. I don't think so. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> One of my wives <laughs> uh, was his Ted Nugent's kid's nanny. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> so I'll probably know a little bit more about him than you do. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> it's all an act, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Well, he has something going, you know. Yeah. Oh, so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it doesn't necessarily have to agree with me, you know. Oh, sure. Great player, though. I mean, I always always yeah. enjoyed his playing. So. Yeah, he was a great perf- performer and a great player. So you've done a lot of a lot of producing and mixing. As a producer that's gone through the whole process with the band, has come up with the music, put it all together. Is it hard to hand it off to a different mixer and master? Uh, for me, it would be impossible. Yeah. I, I would really, really know, geez, no. Because the, the thing is that when you start a project, you work on it a certain way, and you do certain things because you want to do different things or some things in the mix. Yeah. You know, you make that snare sound like that because you want it to sound like that in the mix. Uh, and and if you hand that off, that other person might interpret that completely wrong. Right. You know, and, and then they go, oh, that's, a, that's not a good snare sound, let's replace it. But you had something in mind, you know. Just think about the Van Halen records, that snare sound. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When I heard it, I go, Jesus, somebody fucked up bad, you know. And then... The next day, from then on, everybody that came to me, can you get us that Van Halen snare yeah, song? <laughs> so, yeah. you know, there's something there. And, and uh, uh, they probably meant to do that. Yeah. yeah. You know, and, and police that snare song. They, they meant to do that. Right. But uh, um, I think I rather was involved in the whole project from the first minute to the mastering. Yeah, I can you know? imagine. And and I think most of them I have. Yeah. You know, I have mixed some records for other people. Right. But there's a, like Metallica, mm-hmm. you know, but that was recorded fantastically. That's yeah. one of the greatest sounding records ever. Yeah. 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 To this day it is. And, uh, you know, even other records. And, and But it, it is... Even as a mixer, it's hard 
that point to understand what did they mean by that? What did they want to bring across? And why does it sound so weird? Hmm. You know, did they just mess up? Do I have to fix it? Or do I use it and make it a positive thing? That is very hard to decide. Does the producer ever show up and go, hey, this is what we're thinking? Is the band there going, bring this up, bring that down, do this, do that? Or is it left completely in your trust at that point? I had more the band show up and like in Metallica and, and, and bring their idea across, you know, uh, I had a couple of situations where the producer showed up, but I think it's only, I think on, on, uh, Warlock. Yeah. Okay. I forgot what the name was of the record. True Steel. I think it was. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, yeah, they they showed up and then told me how the snare was meant to be and stuff like that. And then you respect that, you mm-hmm. know, because that's the guy who worked from the beginning with that and did that for a certain reason. Yeah. Back in 82, you worked with the Plasmatics mm-hmm. and their album Coup d'etat. Mm-hmm. Wendy Williams is known as pretty an outlandish person, character mm-hmm. in the history of rock. What was it like working with her? Was she as wild and crazy there as the persona, or was she more business in the well, studio? Well, number one, she's one of the nicest people I knew. Yeah. You know, she passed away, and then she was one of the nicest people I knew. She was one of... And she was a very, very good singer. Yeah. The problem was that she would sing in the control room right next to me. And I had to wear earplugs because her voice is so loud that you couldn't be in the same room with it, you know. But she was a nice person, tried to do her best and did her best and and worked hard. And, you know, there was a little bit of craziness, but I think that was more outside of the studio than, you know, than than during recording. Mm. And that was... uh, Dieter Dirks produced that one, and I was just the engineer on it. Right. I didn't know you worked on that record. Yeah. Is that the one that had all the Gene Simmons involvement? No. Uh-uh. Or that was the one before that, was it? After, I think. Yeah. After it. The tank. This was a Plasmatics album. That was a Wendy O. Williams solo album. Oh, uh, that's what yeah. I'm thinking of. I'm thinking of the Wow album. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I really like the Plasmatics and Wendy O. Williams. Yeah. And again, you know, ideas. I mean, the videos that they made where the... Really? (laughs) Yeah. Driving a school bus through a bunch of TVs and, and, you know, that was just like, wow, man. That was wild. That's awesome. Did you have, um, so, you know, you were booked pretty solid through that whole decade. And Mm. so one project right after another. Yeah. Were there projects that you got approached to do by certain bands that you had to turn down and then you go, oh, wow, now that one went on to multi-platinum success and I couldn't do it because I was doing this other one? Um, for different reasons, yes. Mm-hmm. One of them was Appetite for Destruction. Oh, you were approached to do that? <laughs> yeah, I was, I was approached to mix it. Really? And wow. and back then, Ella Niven was the manager, mm-hmm. and Ella Niven and Don Dawkins and I, we, we stayed at the same house. So um, Ella Niven was also the manager for Great White, mm-hmm. and and he asked me if I could do it, and for some reasons, I turned it down. You know, that was like quite an expensive <laughs> mistake yeah. that I made at the time. The other one was Pearl Jam. Yeah. The 10 album? 
How good would it have been if Michael Wagner would have produced well, that? One of the wow. listener questions well, was, that, why didn't you do any grunge stuff? That was never really my music. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, uh, Raven got close, Yeah, you know, but it was just fast metal. Mm-hmm. And But grunge itself uh, was... Nobody cared about the tuning anymore. They didn't care about amplifiers humming and, and the timing was something. And I didn't like that. This wasn't for you. No. Yeah. yeah. No. So, uh, and also, if I would have done Pearl Jam and Guns N' Roses. Oh, wow. Well. Which other producer would have been there in the 80s? Probably would have done it all. Right. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I guarantee you, whoever did those records... Got a bunch of jobs out of that. Oh yeah, for sure. Well, Mike, so, is it Mike, Mike Clink? Yeah. Although I, I heard several people turn Guns N' Roses down. From like Paul Stanley well, was approached. To, well, well, Paul Stanley was approached to. Well, I got to think it was really more. Slash says the only reason we had Paul Stanley come over is because Stephen Adler is a big Kiss fan, but. So Stephen was like, let's get Paul Stanley to produce the record. Paul had never produced anything other than Kiss records. And Paul showed up, and he sees these guys that are all just laying around wasted, and he's like, uh, I'm not working with these guys. And so, I, but yeah, I can imagine that. I mean, I mean, until that album took off, they were like probably the most destructive band on earth at the time. You know, no, Probably most people around Hollywood didn't think they were going to amount to much because of how dangerous they were. You know? I, I, I never even heard the music up to that point. Really? Up to the point where I turned it down, I've never heard the music. That might have changed my mind. Yeah. yeah. You know, but... Yeah, well, pre- pretty unreliable group yeah. of guys at that time, yeah. you know, and... And it's pretty well known that you weren't one to party with the bands. You know, you were there with a purpose right. and had work to do. Well, I'm not into drugs. I, I'm absolutely not into alcohol, even though through some of the records I would drink with the band. Yeah. Never in the studio, never at work. Yeah. But we would go out at night and stuff like that uh, in the late 80s or something like that. But since 1988, uh, I haven't had... A drop wow. of alcohol. That's awesome. So, and I'm not, I'm not, not missing it. Yeah. You know? And I was never back then. I was never like, oh, I gotta drink something. Right. We right. would just drink because we were hanging out. Yeah, social drink. Yeah. Social yeah. thing. Yeah. yeah. What happened in '88? You get drunker than you ever got before. And decided to give <laughs> yes. it up. Yeah. <laughs> Skid Row record. I was gonna say, yeah. which band is it? First Skid Row record. <laughs> and Johnny came up, Johnny Bon Jovi, and we had Muff Divers. And you know what a muff diver is? No. It's a pitcher of, I think, four or five sorts of alcohol with fruit juice. Oh, so when Lord. you drink it, you don't even realize yeah. it. Yeah. It sneaks up on and you. And I ended up that we recorded at Royal Recorders, and that was that studio was in a big hotel, the big Playboy Mansion Hotel. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, there was a bathroom, and there was a, uh, a big hole in the wall how you got into the bathroom I never got in because I kept running against the wall right next to it and that's how drunk I was and then I kind of thought let's not do it I was like what am I doing (laughs) so we're talking about like the 80s it's a big party scene all the time you know you talk about a lot of the bands you work with are known for their hard drug partying days back then did any of them ever treat you differently because you wouldn't partake in drugs like that no no, see, um, my opinion is that when you take drugs or drink alcohol, 
a lot of alcohol, you're not in control anymore. Right. And I'm a total control freak. Yeah, and you so, have to be. I, and yeah. you have to be because you're all of a sudden responsible for the life of five people. Right. Or six when you include yourself. Yeah. You know? So that's a big responsibility. And at least you have to do the best you can to your own ability. Right. You might fuck up anyway, but... At least you, I did the best I could. Yeah, yeah. you know. So um, that, to me, was, I think that has been respected mm-hmm. all the time. Okay. Um, and on the other hand, I've seen where bands, where other producers were in, and they would get in on the partying and stuff like that. They were not as respected, you know. Mm. Yeah. Because now you become to the same, uh, drug-wise, the same level as the band. And they don't trust themselves. Right. That means why should they trust you if you take the same drugs? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Luckily, I've never, ever, ever, ever taken any cocaine or I hit hit one hit of... uh, What's it called? A joint? Yeah. Mm-hmm. One. And that was at a Little River Band concert <laughs> at the Hollywood Bowl. Wow. And, and that was in, must have been in 1980. Oh, wow. And, uh, that was a requirement to be I there. Completely <laughs> freaked out. Wow. The girl oh, that really? drove, drove us home, I go, slow down. She was going 20 miles an hour. <laughs> you know? And, and, I, I completely with that one hit I completely lost it. Wow. So and 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 by now if I smell it I throw up. Oh really? So if you would be smoking anything there I would throw up. Wow. That that mean meant also that bands that smoked a little dope that's okay. Right. You know if you're not on like heroin or something like that. Sure. That's okay, but they had to do it outside. You got to take it outside. <laughs> if, if it's cold outside, that's not, that's frowned upon. Yeah. yeah. So, but, yes, I remember those. And, that, and that's why they recorded in Wisconsin. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's too cold outside, so yeah. get to work. Right. Yeah. Did you have standing rules, like say, all right, do what you want on your time, but when you're on my time, you're you're not bringing crap in here and doing right. Stuff. There yeah. was absolutely no smoking in the studio. Yeah, not even in the front in the lounge. Yeah, which is weird, but you know, uh, especially around technical gear, it'll it'll spoil if you yeah. smoke around it. Right. You know, and and I mean, I smoked sixty cigarettes a day. And and till nineteen eighty four, till I got to do striper. Nobody in the band smoked, and the guy we went to his studio recorded a single before we did Soldiers, and and the guy who owned the studio was not allowed smoking, and I go, here's my chance. I, now I guess I quit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One day to the next, I stopped smoking from sixty to zero. Wow! But then <laughs> my hand was not going into the cookie jar. It was the cookie jar. Yeah. You know, so I would like eat candy, crazy, gained a lot of weight. Yeah. And and I think when I think about it now, I think it might have been good not to smoke. Mm-hmm. You know. No, sure. And and with 60 cigarettes. I started smoking when I was 12. Mm. Wow. You, you could pull him on them on the on the machines. <laughs> on yeah. The machines yeah. And, yeah. Those are illegal now. Yeah. That's wow. Fun. Well, yeah, well so 
Yeah, I, I should bring up Striper. I mean, they must have been very professional to work with those guys. Yes, yeah. yes. And, and you know, we that was uh, basically it was a tryout mm. uh, if we were compatible, you know. And, yes, we were. And, and doing that single, what was it, the Triple Tree Studios or something like that. I forgot where it was, mm-hmm. somewhere in L.A., and uh, uh, yeah, we did the first single there, and then a couple of months later, we started on uh, Soldiers. Yeah, well, at, I, at Amigo. Uh, yeah, and then you know, one of the listeners had asked about uh, Soldiers Under Command. Like, but you know, we got Michael up to do uh, a panel on the making of the record at uh, Rock and Pod a couple of years ago, and yeah, he just spoke in very glowing terms about the job you did on that and yeah. working with you. We had a good time. So did you, you? So you enjoyed making that one? Oh, they thing. were amazing musicians. Yeah, I remember we did. Uh, normally, when you do the drums, you set up all the drums, mm-hmm. and then at the at the end when you have all the microphones set up, you do one take and you take that home and and listen at home. You know, and and I said that to Robert. Do one take, and we take it home. We start tomorrow. That was at seven o'clock at night. And he goes, "No, I want to do my drums tonight." Mm-hmm. He did his drums till seven o'clock in the morning. He did all his takes, wow. and most of them were first takes. Wow, nice. He is a monster drummer. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're all monsters. And, and Michael, you know, he gets credit for the being the singer, but what an amazing lead guitar player that guy is. Yeah, you know. And <laughs> it was funny. I remember it. We were still doing one song, a few vocals. And I was already in the other studio doing the mix for another band. Mm-hmm. And and I think the I think it might have been Alice Cooper. I, I'm not sure. And then all of a sudden Michael comes into that studio, can you come over there? I can't work with the assistant. And I go, Okay. So I go, Okay, I'm gonna sit in the back and just watch a little bit. And Michael is trying to hit that that high note, which was impossible to hit, mm. you know. And and he sings it, and the guy goes, "Oh, that sucked." I go, "Out! You're fired! Oh, wow. You're fired right yeah. now! I don't ever want to see you again." Yeah. Wow. And of course, Michael was like tense, and and you know. Sure. I mean, you're I trying something so hard, and then all you got to say is that sucked. That sucked. That's terrible. And, Let and me see you do it. You know. Yeah. And then I sat down. We did it in the next ten minutes. It was all done. Nice. You know. But that's that's it. You know that you got to have that relationship yeah. and, and that feeling for it. You never say that sucked because you're out of a job right yeah. after that. Sure, you know. So, yeah, I've never heard of negative reinforcement really working in no. a situation like no. that. But no. some some people do it like that. <laughs> yeah, you know. So I was never a friend of it, but some people do it like. Although that. I'm sure you've had times where somebody would do a take and you'd be like. It's good, but I think you can do better. And you push yeah, but you say way. it like that. Yeah. yeah, it's always positive. Yeah, you know, that was one of your good takes. So now mm. let's do more of your good takes. Yeah, but don't know? say that sucked. Yeah, <laughs> no. no kidding. That's pretty awful. No. Hmm. Mm. I recently came across a bootleg demo CD that I guess somebody got a hold of and released, and it had a bunch of Ozzy songs on it from the Osmosis sessions, and I was wondering. Were there any songs that you recorded with Ozzy 
that didn't make it onto the album. Well, I can tell you how it was. Yeah. It was, um, we did No More Tears, mm -hmm. and No More Tears was, was very successful. Then the record company came to me and said, okay, we want you to produce the next Aussie record. Uh, it wasn't called Osmosis then yet. Yeah. And, and we want you to make it exactly like No More Tears. And as you know, No More Tears had the big snare reverb and oh, the big sound-sounding record, yeah. yeah. record which basically helped sell it. Yeah. You yeah. Know? And so we started doing that. And halfway through, we went into a, a writing break. We had seven songs that we recorded, and I mixed them kind of rough, most of it. Then the record company came and said, now we want it to sound like Soundgarden. By the way, I, I spoke wrong. I didn't turn down Pearl Jam. I turned down Soundgarden. Oh, really? Ah, yeah. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, um, uh, but around the same time. Yeah. Might have been the Bad Motor Finger record. Maybe. I think that's what yeah. it was. Yeah. So anyway. Wow. <laughs> I would have loved to have heard yeah. that. Yeah. And so uh, um, now we wanted to sound like Soundgarden. And I go, well, are you crazy? Soundgarden wants to sound like Ozzy. You know? Yeah. So uh, then I did. And if you start something a certain way and you have a certain picture in mind where the rooms are and how big it is. You can't just take that off and have a good sounding record. Right. And so I tried it, but I never really liked that mix either. Yeah. And and so they, since we were on the writing break, they gave it to Michael Beinhorn, right, yeah. who did Soundgarden. Mm -hmm. You know. So and he re-recorded everything. Different players too, right? Different players. Yeah, Zach uh, wasn't on it anymore, and and it was it was a whole different thing, mm -hmm. different tempo, different pitch. Yeah. Like uh, 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 the first, what was it? Perry Mason mm -hmm. was lower because Ozzy had always complained. It's so high. If I have to sing that live, you know, I go, but it sounds better. So we did it in the high range, yeah. and they did it. They were not as st stable against his opinion. Well, so, and, and a lot of his albums after that were, yeah. were a little yeah. tuned lower. Which I understand. I mean, I get that. That You can't keep hitting those you know stratospheric notes forever. You know? Sure. But, I, well, I mean, how, I, can't, I can imagine your reaction when you heard the final product of that. <sighs> you must have been like, what I, the hell did I they almost, do to this? I almost died. Yeah. I almost died. And as I don't know if you know if I ever played it to you, but I had... Both versions, my mixed but not mastered version against the CD that was released here in time, mm -hmm. and we switched. You did, it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and and it was just like, really, they released that and not this, mm. you know? Because your version had like the orchestral stuff in it, right? Was that that? Yeah, we yeah. had yeah. a saxophone. See you on the other side. Song, yeah, yeah, that's what it is. And and we did a whole fifty-six piece orchestra on. Amy, mm -hmm. which wasn't even on the record later, and I don't know, I don't know. Sometimes I don't get those decisions, right? You know. Well, but, I, I guess in that case, it was more sign of the times. Is like the grunge thing's big now, so yes. now we're going to try to acquiesce to that, right? And I, I don't know what those demos are that you talk well, about. I got there. What I got here is there's Perry Mason. And then there's a version of Ghost Behind My Eyes that's on it. 
I don't. I've never recorded that one. All right, and then there's a song called "Feels So Good to Be Bad." I never recorded that one either. There's a song called "Frustrated." Yes, I'm hated. Nope. Hmm. Say yeah, yeah. That could be anything. <laughs> yeah. My my Jekyll doesn't hide. Nope. So these could have been Michael Beinhorn recording. Could have been. Yeah. The yeah. bitch won't go. My new rock and roll and too far gone. I don't think I've even listened to all of those. Yeah, they're they're out there. They're, I think I saw them on YouTube, but I was like, I wonder if any of these are Michael Wagner versions of these songs. But I always wanted to ask that. I think the Perry Mason one is. Yeah, I'm pretty because I remember him playing it for us. Don't read them, but these are the ones that we did. So yeah, folks listening, be jealous. We're looking wow. at the uh, <laughs> the original wow. CD. Wow, I've never Listen. heard those. Okay. Those were all, seven of them were done and, and mixed to... Stairway to Heaven, I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm uh, And then the live ones were from the Osmos for the, the tour. Oh, yeah. The No More BS tour. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and this Black Sabbath live was with Black Sabbath where Ozzy, you know... Black Sabbath opened up for Ozzy mm-hmm. in, in California. Oh, yeah. yeah. And Ozzy came out and did four songs with him. Wow. And those were the four songs. And I have all that on video, too, because I was in the recording truck, and we had a camera on stage recording and, and seeing all where all the microphones were and stuff like oh, that. Oh, that's cool. Wow. VHS. <laughs> Man, I want to hear those two songs on there I've never heard before. Slow Burn. Yeah. What's the other See, one? See, there's the Perry Mason, there's Perry Mason Dry Mix. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was the changed one. Living with one, the two, Enemy. Three, four, five. Well, I thought six, we weren't going to name off song titles now. He started it. Okay, he started it. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, those are the songs that are on. Most of them. Oh, Slow this? Burn's not, I don't think. It's probably called something else. Yeah. Yeah, because some of that's working titles. Like oh, said, oh, yeah. Well, the one on YouTube, Say Yeah, Yeah, That's that's got to be a yeah, working title. That's not a real song named. title. Old L.A. Tonight. Yeah, that's that on, one's there. on there. Yeah, I like that song. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so. How it could have been. But I really love the your version of See You Can on the you Other win? Side. <laughs> yeah. I think I've got it in my couch cushions. Yeah, yeah I'll see if I can find it. <laughs> You get the you get the lawsuit guitar with it. Yeah, yeah I, I, I'm guaranteed a divorce if I buy that from. But the yeah. thing is, and I, that I'm honest, never has any of that left the studio. Yeah, I might have played it for a couple of people, mm-hmm. but it never has left the studio, and it never will. Yeah, you know. So when wherever they got that. All I right. have no idea. I know that Ozzy released on his best off. He released uh, "See You on the Other Side." Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he called it the demo version. Mm-hmm. Okay, and and uh, and that uh, was your version. That was my version. Yeah, that and one's he out said there. that's what Osmosis should should have sounded like. Yeah, because he wasn't very happy with the end result of mm. you know. So, but but he's Ozzy. He could have said no at any time. Well, maybe. Unless, if, Sharon just, allow, please, if Sharon says please, he can. dear. <laughs> yeah, if Sharon allows it. It was, <laughs> I think it was definitely the record company. Yeah. yeah. You know? Well, they're like, we're funding it, so you're going to do it all Same with the, yeah. when they remastered uh, No More Tears. Yeah. And I died when I heard that. Mm. It was 
awful. That's got to, and you know that ha- that's happened with the you know Skid Row stuff. They're they're re-releasing this stuff, but they're brick walling the hell out of it, and that's got to drive I, you, that's got to drive you crazy. Just heard somewhere Sebastian going on about Slave to the Grind yeah. got remastered, yeah. and he's hating it. Oh, he hates yeah. it. Yeah. I haven't even heard it yet, and I won't. Yeah, he did an A/B test with the vinyl through his, his home system, and 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 you can hear the difference. I mean, there's just no dynamics in the new stuff, right. you know. Yeah. So all the fuck ups that have snuck into producing records lately, mm. they get snuck in when they re remaster it. Yep. And, you know, because it, mm. it it can only be remastered because those tapes are nowhere to be found. Yeah. When yeah. we did 40 Seasons, we wanted to remix some stuff from the first Skid Row record. The tapes are nowhere to be found. Wow. Where do you, why do you, you think that is? When you I, record something as producer, do you make yourself a copy of the masters and keep them for yourself? Of the forever? master, yeah, yeah, but not of the multi-track. Right, okay. Those were 32-track digital and 24-track analog, and, and the analog machine was 15 minutes. And the digital machine was 30 minutes. So there was one digital tape and two analog tapes that belonged together. Nowhere to be found. Dang. It's probably the record company that lost them. Yeah. Do you think they just got trashed somewhere? I have no idea. If I would know. It's crazy. But we were trying to find and get all the tapes together. Not one song we could get together. Well, I also yeah. recall a couple of years ago, there was, it was Sony or some big music clearinghouse had a giant fire, and a whole yeah. lot of original tapes yeah. got got ruined yeah. from that. That yeah. was a heartbreaker. That to could hear be that. Some, that could be the reason for some of that stuff. Yeah, right. That's that was tragic. I guess when you're back then and you're living it, you don't realize you're making history. I mean, that's got to bring true for you, right? You're just working. You're just doing the best you can. You don't yeah. stop and think someday two nerdy rock guys are going to be wanting to hang out with me and I'm trying to retire and want to be talking about all this stuff. <laughs> yeah, you sit there and mix and you don't realize that record's going to make it in the Library of Congress yeah. to preserve that sound, yeah. you know? Yeah. The, the one thing that's missing is it's got to go to the moon. Yeah. Right. Somehow, you know, that's what the astronauts are listening to while they're flying out right. there. But I mean that that has like I know it sounds cliche to say soundtrack of our lives, but you truly produce the soundtrack of a lot of people's lives. That's yeah. because I produced so many. But, I mean yeah. that, that that has to be important to you, yeah. you know, to to know that you know that a lot of us coming up as kids, you know, this is the the music we fell in love with, and right. you're a big part of that that thing. Well, thanks. Yeah. yeah. So uh, well, we were talking about Skid Row a little bit. Um, Kevin Williams from the In Obscuria podcast. He wanted to know, um, can you talk about what happened with the United World Rebellion Chapter 3 that Skid Row was supposed to put out? The the first the album was ZP singing? Oh, yeah. We, we did a whole album, yeah. and it was during COVID. Mm-hmm. And we did the album in a completely different way than we were used to and the way we should have done it. We didn't really do pre-production on it. You know, we basically just went in and recorded it. Mm-hmm. And then and ZP was in was in England and he just came in and here sing on this. Mm-hmm. It was it was all not right. It was all we shouldn't have done it like that. Mm-hmm. So it's all done. Mm-hmm. I have that somewhere mixed but not mastered. But at the end I Rachel said, you know what? I just wanna do 
some more songs, mm. at which point I had to already retired. Right. So otherwise I would probably be doing it. Mm -hmm. But so it got finished, but not finished. Okay. You know, so I don't know. He's got it. They have it all, but I don't know whatever the, it's their record, whatever right, yeah. they need to do with it, yeah. you know. And I think it was some good stuff on there. And I'm not sure if they're going to reuse some of the stuff mm -hmm. or even use some of the stuff that we did. Right. I, I don't know what the situation is. I, I know yeah. Golden Robot had signed them to put it out but because they put a press release out. I think it was last year saying it's coming out, but it had it, nothing's happened since then. Right. Yeah. So, but I, it makes sense if Rachel wants to put more songs on it. Right. Maybe they're just waiting that out. Right. And that means now, if they go in now, after all that COVID time, and do new songs, mm -hmm. they're not going to fit with the songs that are on there. They so they will have to write a whole new album. Yeah, they'll have to re-record a whole know? bunch of stuff. Yeah. Okay, we're, we're, a lot of people still, looking forward like, to it. Real close friends, Rachel and I. We're he's the first one that got a picture of the truck. <laughs> <And> <laughs> so, but uh, obviously, I'm not doing it anymore. Sure, I can't doing it anymore because I've no equipment. Yeah, they show up now. Like, you're, right. you're out of luck. I'm sorry. <laughs> I would have to record on the wire. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That was one of our favorite memories during our show was having Rachel over here and you and him going over yeah, the, the stories yeah. from the first that album. Was and yeah. to the day, I have to say, that first Skit Row album, making it was some of the most fun I've had. Yeah. You know, I've, I always had fun doing records. There's rarely ever, I mean, of like 300 records that I've done, there was maybe like, Two, mm. where I thought, hmm, I'm not too happy with that one. What are those? No. <laughs> <laughs> I had to try. Come on, give me yeah. <laughs> and, uh Master of Puppets, okay? Yeah. <laughs> in, one case, in one case, the band split up right after the record came out. Oh, no. And uh, what was the other? Oh, you wouldn't even know the band. From Germany. Oh, really? And it was very... It was a band where if you could play more than two chords, you got fired from the band. Oh, wow. So, right there, you know. Wow, that sounds like a pleasure to work on. So, yeah. <laughs> Talking about German bands, you got to work with Bonfire. Yes. Did you guys speak German the whole time you were working on it? Mm hmm How refreshing was that? Was that great or what? Except for the drummer. He was Bavarian, so. Ah. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> so he was just lost the whole time. No, but Yeah. <laughs> It was fun. I bet. We, we kind of clicked, you know, especially Klaus, the singer, and the bass player, who's now in, in Taiwan. He lives somewhere or, somewhere over there. Mm -hmm. and, and he's a photographer. And, and we clicked. We had, we had a good time. And on one of them, I did two with them. Yeah. And, and on one of them, we had Ken Mary, who was a drummer Amazing in Alice drummer. Cooper for, for a while. Okay. And then... Fifth Angel? You mm -hmm. guys know more know about that than I do. Mm -hmm. We had him play the drums. Mm -hmm. And we sent him we sent him the, the rough tapes and and he came from Seattle and on the way here he listened to the rough tapes. He got in and played them right away. Nice. No questions asked. Ken Mary is amazing, amazing. Yeah. And uh, and he's found the fountain of youth because he looks like he's sixteen years old to this day. Yeah, and did he you have you heard what he's playing now? Uh -uh. Oh, he is totally one of those super modern. Oh, really? Yeah, Blast amazing drummer, man. I mean, <laughs> if anybody could do it, it was him. You know? Yeah. 
He was on uh, Rachel Fist and Yale. He was uh, he was the drummer on that. Uh, this Victor, our friend Victor Ruiz from Mars Attacks podcast says, uh, "What album did you work on that you thought would be huge and didn't make a dent?" And conversely, which albums were much bigger that you worked on than you expected them to be? Well, the one that didn't make it because of not because the album wasn't good, but because of political reasons in the record company, is Kane Roberts. Mm. That album, to me, was always like, yes, that's a great record. Yeah. Kane is an amazing musician, amazing singer, you know, and overall just an amazing guy. Yeah. And and uh, uh, we did a great album together, and I mixed his next album that Desmond Child, I think, put Yeah, it was that Saints and Sinners? Yeah. Yeah. And and uh, that album, I thought, should have, I mean, the uh, the Kane Roberts album, mm. should have done really, really good. Yeah. It never, I mean, they kept it down in the label. I don't know why. He was perfect for that time. He had the, the skills. He had the look. I mean, the girls would have went crazy for him. He'd have been centerfold of every hit parader and metal yeah, edge out there. Totally. You're the political stuff. Yeah. You're the second producer we've talked to that speaks highly of him because we interviewed Desmond, and Desmond went on and on about how great and underrated. Kane yeah. Is. yeah. Oh yeah. And, yeah. and you know, there's no doubt about Desmond. You know, he's yeah. like <laughs> one of the top people, and and uh, uh, so that was the one that, and then. <laughs> Poison, of course, yeah. would have been the album where I thought, okay, let's get out of here. Yeah. And it, it just exploded. Yeah. You know? I think that one shocked everybody. Totally. Especially yeah. everyone in that scene. Totally. I mean, because they were, from what I've, I've heard, they were a great live band and they were fun. They were fun. They were yeah. a party band and people didn't give a shit about the music. Yeah. But they had a great time yeah. going to the show and it exploded. You know, so and everybody knows my story about it. Yeah. So, <laughs> but the uh, although t- you know, talk dirty to me. There's just something super catchy about that song. And yeah, I, I think that. Or I think that was one. Most that really, of the songs are very yeah, catchy. But that one, when when that one hit him, that's the one that I discovered him on. Was yeah. When that hit MTV, I was like, damn, this is really catchy. Yeah. And you can't deny it's just a great party song. Yeah. And that just opened the door for those guys. You know? Yeah, and a lot of bands after them. And they meant it. I mean, all the makeup and all, it took some some guts to do all oh, this yeah, lipstick yeah. and, yeah. you know, and, and it, but it worked. And they meant it. They were behind all that, you know, and, and, and they were decent players. They were not like the super players, but they were also not bad. Yeah. Right. So... It all worked out for them. I saw a comedian. I can't remember which comedian it was. It might have been Bill Burr. Said, "You know, when that Poison first album came out, you know, I, I didn't know who the band was, and I jerked off to that album cover for two years, <laughs> and then I found out they were guys. So then it was just about once a month." Yeah. <laughs> well, that's the same thing. I remember getting that on cassette tape when it came out because same thing. Saw the video. I was like, "That's so much fun. That's awesome." It, had elements of like kiss to it that I liked, and my mom saw it and was like, "Oh, they're beautiful." I like them are dudes, and my dad's like, "What is he listening to?" Oh, my parents were horrified when I brought yeah. that album home. They're like, "Those are guys." I was like, "Yeah." And then I got into Kiss like a year later, and they're like, "Well, they look like clowns, but at least they don't look like women." <laughs> <laughs> it's a step up. <laughs> Thank you.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 